where we're going to need to see some real growth acceleration if we're going to call C-band a big success. So maybe call it mid-single digits or even better than that by the time we're in mid-decade, say by 2025. So I think if that doesn't come from some of these new opportunities, these new revenue verticals, it's possible that prices, your prices, my prices for wireless are going to have to start going higher. From our road offices, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. Our team of nearly 100 analysts originates research for more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. I am Christopher Snow, the U.S. Head of Research, and I'm here with Davis Abair, our senior analyst covering telecom. Hi, Davis. Welcome. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. Well, thank you. We're here to talk about the recently completed wireless spectrum auction, uh, and I'd like you to provide some framing for that. And as we've had nearly 100 auctions since the, the first one, uh, I think almost 30 years ago, this one was one of the most eagerly anticipated by the industry. Can you talk about what was at stake for this auction? Sure. So I'm going to go into a little bit of Spectrum 101, if you will. So Spectrum is airwaves that make wireless communications work. And the way I like to think about it is Spectrum is like a network of roads or highways. And really, you have three different buckets. Low band spectrum relates to airwaves that are used to cover a wide geographic area. So my highway example is to think of one of those long, straight, two-lane roads out west. You can go nice and fast, but it doesn't take a lot to cause a traffic jam. So under the voice era, carriers that had substantial low band spectrum had a strategic advantage. You wanted a signal, but the bandwidth requirements were pretty small. So this is really why Verizon and AT&T are two of the largest carriers in the country. They had by far the most low band spectrum of any other carrier. So an example of this would be the 700 megahertz spectrum that was auctioned a little more than a decade ago. And that at that time, that was one of the most anticipated spectrum auctions in history. Now, with wireless networks, I don't have to tell you that things have changed significantly over the last decade. Everything is way more data intensive. The bandwidth requirement is multiples larger. So now you not only need a signal, but you also need a lot of capacity. So let's consider the other extreme from low band spectrum. The second bucket is millimeter wave spectrum. So that would be like 24 gigahertz or even 47 gigahertz. So think of that for an interstate highway comparison. That's like a 10 lane interstate. It can handle a lot of cars, but think about how time consuming and expensive it is to build an architecture like that. So you're not going to build it everywhere, only really where you have that kind of demand. So then right in wedged in between millimeter wave and low band spectrum is something called mid band spectrum. And it's really the perfect mix between the two. It's able to handle a lot of traffic, it's not nearly as expensive as millimeter wave to build out. And it's really for 5G, the ideal spectrum. So up to this date, we've had very little of this mid-band spectrum available for wireless carriers. The only carrier that's really had a lot of this spectrum was Sprint with 2.5 gigahertz spectrum, and they couldn't even afford to build it out themselves. So now with T-Mobile merging with Sprint, they have their hands on that spectrum, and they are aggressively pushing this advantage. So that this setup really led us to the C-band auction. That's what we call this auction. It's named for spectrum that is was previously used by satellites. And uh, satellites companies are clearing the spectrum so that it's available for terrestrial use. 
And this C-band spectrum was really the first look Verizon and AT&T have had at this so-called Goldilocks spectrum for 5G. So that's really why it made this auction so important. Thanks to someone who used analog voice cell phones way back when. There's been a lot of change, as you mentioned. And I I think, as you say, is that this is some of the most interesting spectrum that's been available for a while. We'll get to actually how that affects us individually later in the podcast. But before we get into all that, maybe give us some of the facts and figures. How much was spent? By whom? What did actually came to pass here? Sure. So I'll just run through the quick math and kind of leave the why explanation for later questions. This auction cost $81 billion, and that compares to expectations going into the auction of somewhere around 35 to $45 billion. So it blew away expectations. Now, that $81 billion is going to the FCC. But beyond that, this spectrum has to be cleared of the incumbent users, as I suggested, the satellite companies. It's currently being used for satellite distribution of media content. So think of like the Discovery Channel getting beamed up to satellites, that then that signal gets beamed to all the cable head-ins across the country at the same time. So when you're watching live Discovery Channel, that's the feed you're getting. So to clear those users, it's going to cost an additional $14 billion on top of the $81 billion. So total cost of $95 billion. So of that $95 billion, we estimated Verizon spent $53 billion, and they got 160 megahertz of nationwide spectrum. AT&T was second at $27 billion for an 80 megahertz uh, nationwide spectrum position. And third was T-Mobile at $11 billion for a little less than 30 megahertz. So 96% of that 81 billion or 95 billion, including the payments to satellite companies, was spread across the big three carriers. Well, one of the adages in auctions is that the the winner is actually the loser, and that a competitive pool of bidders is only really good for the sellers. As you noted, that this auction was you know, at least double what many in the industry thought was going to come to pass. Do you have a sense of whether or not the winning bidders for 5G just see more opportunity? than everyone else, or whether or not this is just a defensive market position at any cost? Well, I'm going to sound cliche. I think it's both. I actually think 5G will bring opportunity. When you look at the secular trends that are moving underneath us, the exponential growth in wireless data usage, the number of connected devices, you know, think about in your own household, how many connected devices you have. I mean, I bet it's, you know, 10 to 20 or maybe even more. And you know, thinking about things like wearables, iWatches, machine to machine, it's clear that demand for wireless services is only going to be growing over the next decade. Now, how to size up that opportunity from a, a financial perspective, that is the part that is proving to be difficult. So I think it's clear that it will have to be something incremental beyond just consumers migrating from 4G to 5G to justify the cost of this $95 billion alone. So I've seen estimates of the enterprise network business, so commercial customers using 5G to become more efficient. I've heard that the the size, the the, uh, total addressable market of that business could be five times what it is today in five years. You have high bandwidth services like gaming and virtual reality. Those are probably going to grow. You have low latency services like connected cars that might be part of the future. And then you just start thinking about, you know, the, the, the cartoon, the Jetsons, just like I'm coming up with all kinds of crazy blue sky ideas. Like who would have thought businesses like Uber would have existed until 4G became prolific. So maybe there are things we haven't even thought about yet. So, 
you know, we may not be seeing robust growth for the carriers in 2021. So if that's how we're going to be judging the spending, it's probably not going to look pretty based on the balance sheet imprint these guys are leaving. But the opportunity cost of not participating could be enormous. You don't want to be that one carrier that didn't play and miss out on what could be a golden era for a wireless. So that's kind of the glasses half full answer. Yeah, that's fair. And I guess later on, we'll get into a little bit more about, you know, where those individual, where those opportunities are for, for more of my wallet going towards these guys. But turning to Verizon, AT&T as the top bidders here, given their, you know, that was your expectation. And I think that was informed by whether it's their spectrum deficiencies or what they wanted to do. You know, presumably you're surprised by, by the big number. You know, we've seen from the equity market, they seem a bit underwhelmed by the bid results. And, you know, broadly, you haven't seen, you know, the performance in, in this sector as we've seen, you know, in the S&P. And I'd say also you see, in, in, you know, closer to our markets, the credit spreads, they've similarly shrugged off what the implications of this are for the balance sheet. Do you think that these guys have the same kind of wiggle from the rating agencies? Well, I think that one of the things that was somewhat surprising is that the agencies going into the auction had provided a few numbers, guideposts, if you will, of what they expected, what they might tolerate from a ratings perspective. And clearly, we went well beyond that. It turns out that those hard caps were really pretty soft caps. Verizon's leverage in this case moves from 2.3 times to 3.3 times based on our math. AT&T moves from 2.7 to 3.1. If you include leases and pension obligations, AT&T's leverage probably moves closer to the high three times to maybe even four times area. So if those had been hard caps, you'd probably be looking at downgrades here. However, the question I think the agencies have been asking themselves is, should we be the ones to penalize companies for buying an asset that is critical to their future? And I think the ultimate answer is no, and that that's why these caps ended up being soft. So the easy answer is do what S&P did, which is shift the outlook to reflect the higher balance sheet risk. S&P yesterday went from positive to stable on Verizon and went from stable to negative on AT&T. So they're giving these companies time to execute. They're all hosting investor days next week. I would expect you know, a pretty strong message of debt reduction and balance sheet risk reduction over the medium term. And so that's kind of what we're at, what S&P decided to do. We, we actually think there's a chance that Moody's stays stable for AT&T, but we'll see. I would expect at least Moody's to move Verizon from positive to stable. And so I think the, the key thing is, you know, we'll be looking for messages from the companies next week at their analyst days. And from there, I think financial policy will be a big focus. Yeah, I'd like to tease that out a bit. Is that, you know, as you say, is that how they plan to pay for it and then how do they, you know, essentially there's going to be a decent amount of debt that they're going to use to fund it. And then what is their plan to to sort of mitigate that higher leverage? You know, I think just recently AT&T, which is the, the second biggest bidder here, you know, they announced a sale of their portion of their DTV business. Are those events part of this funding? Is that, you know, is that going to help them pay the, the $25 billion that they're going to be on the hook for this year? Well, I, I think those two things, the spectrum spending and selling a stake in DirecTV are absolutely linked strategically. You recently have seen a management shift at AT&T with Randall Stevenson handing the reins to John Stanky. And I've noticed a more clear focus on the telecom business at large from Stanky. AT&T really had kind of a meandering wireless business under Stevenson. It seemed 
He was more focused on empire building, you know, buying DirecTV and Time Warner, for example. And so with Stanky at the helm, you've seen AT&T get more aggressive on defending its wireless market share. We saw net postpaid phone growth at levels we haven't seen in years from AT&T for the past two quarters. Now, they have had to get very promotional to do that, but we have seen some impressive numbers from that perspective. Their wireless market share right now is right there with T-Mobile. And so AT&T is going to fight to defend that. They're also, as the largest wireline carrier in the country by far, leaning into fiber investment. So they're they're looking at that to really stabilize the wireline business. So we published a report in December on AT&T called Making Telecom Great Again. And that's you know really our focus on, on this new management team and the fo- strategic focus of AT&T. It'll be up to Stanky to see if he can make telecom great again. But I think that the uh, C-band spending was a, a pretty clear message. They intend to compete and fight in wireless and grow that business over time. And in this case, they get 80 megahertz of spectrum. It's about half of what Verizon got, but it's enough for them to maintain, I think, a, a, uh, a very strong strategic position in the industry. So how does DirecTV fit into that picture? Well, I think the spinoff was really a way to do a couple of things. One was bring forward some cash out of that business and reduce its funding needs for, for the spectrum auction. Secondly, I think it was also a message to to investors that it, AT&T is sharpening its focus. It's no longer in the empire building business. And getting out of video distribution and sort of walling off that business from telecom, uh, I think was the, the ultimate goal there. They get $7.6 billion of cash sometime in the second half. I think that also helps with the rating agencies. Moody's came out the day of that announcement and suggested that it was a positive development for AT&T. I think at the end of the day, it also helps lower their need to come to the IG bond market, which should help with new issue overhang. I wanted to tease out a little bit more on this balance sheet and, you know, specifically as it relates to, you know, the debt and currents, you know, if you look at these companies, Verizon, AT&T, you know, they're valued on an enterprise basis in the six to seven range. You mentioned the leverage you know, creeping into the threes, which, you know, you know, rough back the envelope is in that 50% debt to cap ratio, which starts to stress the investment grade metrics, you know, across industries. When, you know, right now, obviously we have a market that it really doesn't consider much of a downside. And, you know, as we think about, even with the the spectrum results being a lot higher than people thought, and then kind of getting to that destination be like, well, you know, this doesn't actually seem as bad as we thought it might. You know, do you think there's, you know, some kind of catalyst in the future that that would get them to sort of be like, well, actually, this is worse. And that there'd be a catalyst for the market to consider the alternative that there really isn't the business case behind these. And now you say a lot of assets that that isn't going to improve our return on assets. Well, it's a very fair point. And, and one of the things that we focused on in our telecom outlook for 2021 was this huge value discrepancy between telecom service providers and telecom infrastructure. So you have towers and data center companies that are trading at well over 20 times EBITDA. So I think that that valuation really considers you know, the highly visible revenue streams that are part of those sectors. It also, I think, anticipates growth in spending on this digital infrastructure expected over the next decade as companies build out 5G and there continues to be significant focus on fiber. Fiber network companies are seeing 15 times plus valuations in the private market. So you have this tremendous infrastructure capital chasing the space. And 5G, again, part of the, a big part of this story. 
the service providers, as you said, sitting here at six to seven times. So something seems off with the story. And I really think that it's the growth challenge that faces these carriers. Now, when they all host their analyst days next week, they're going to convey a message of leverage reduction, and you'll hear AT&T and Verizon talk about their robust free cash flow available to pay down debt. But there's another lever to reduce leverage, and that's growing EBITDA. We expect low single-digit growth from Verizon in 2021, which is nice, really doesn't move the needle a lot. AT&T is coming off a 7% decline in EBITDA in 2020. Part of that is COVID-related on the media business. But 2021 doesn't look that much promising from a growth perspective off of a pretty low 2020 base. I think they're guiding towards EPS being equivalent to last year. So I think execution on these targets is paramount to keeping spreads reined in for the balance of this year. So growth is the key, key question here for both the short term and the long term for these companies. Well, speaking of that opportunity, I think that it's hard to talk about telecom without bringing up Charlie Ergen, right? There's always the the classic part of the game of of what will Charlie Ergen do, and, and that's specifically in relation to Dish. You know, what we found here is that he wouldn't be bidding, you know, for this mid-band spectrum, but he's otherwise got some pretty big ambitions for the wireless space. What do you think's going on there? Well, I suggested earlier that a lack of participation in C-band could come with a a big opportunity cost. So I was a little surprised to see. Ergen and Dish did not play some role in this auction. I think he won one license for 2.5 million, not billion, but million in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So it's possible he feels he has enough spectrum to swing the bat. Dish has more than 100 megahertz of nationwide spectrum, and none of that's really been deployed yet. He also has other fish to fry, like building a network. He has to build a 5G network. And that's going to cost him about $10 billion. Now that's over the course of, say, you know, five to seven years, but that's still not a small number. So now there's this whole C-band ecosystem that he won't be a part of. So I guess we'll have to see what Charlie has to say on the matter when, when we hear from Dish Next, likely for its next earnings call. All the channel checks are pointing towards real activity from Dish on securing tower sites and fiber backhaul deals. So they are definitely active, but if they're going to be a real 5G player, I was a little surprised to see them not more active in the, in the uh, C-band spectrum auction. I guess to follow that through is that, uh, you know, Spectrum generally has a, a life cycle to it. And for the guys that did cut the big checks in this particular auction, you know, how long do they have the rights that the Spectrum is? And is it sort of a, a technological timeline or, or, or an economic timeline? And, and how does an investor kind of think about what the payback period should be for those? And when would you see them have to re-up to get the next new thing? Yeah, pay, payback period is going to be a tough thing to interpret, I think. I'll, I'll answer the the first question first, the license terms are for 15 years, but I really think you should view them in perpetuity. There's no re-auction or anything of that degree at the end of that 15 years. And you know, the only risk really is of getting your license taken is if you haven't deployed the spectrum. So I think that given the, the participation from Verizon and AT&T, the urgency they have in building out mid-band spectrum, you know, that's not going to be an issue here. There's going to be significant infrastructure capital deployed by both companies to a lesser degree T-Mobile. They're not spectrum hoarders. So I would anticipate, you know, that's not really an, an issue in terms of renewing licenses or any, anything of that degree. As I mentioned, payback period is tough. I think that it really is dependent on, you know, is 5G the next best thing since sliced bread? And you get a lot of different opinions about that. I think some are skeptical that 
it's going to be a huge you know, revenue boost for these companies. And others think that it's going to change the world. And so that's going to be something very, very interesting to watch. I will point out, too, that, that we actually have another auction coming up later this year, in October, I believe it is. So there's another 100 megahertz of spectrum just below C-band coming to market. Now, one key, key difference here is that this spectrum is flexible use, which means I believe it will be shared with federal incumbents. So it may not be as attractive as C-band. C-band is exclusive use to the winners. So that could be a way, a sneaky way for DISH and or cable or another player to get their hands on some mid-band spectrum. But that's something to keep your eyes on for later this year. I think that I put myself probably in the skeptical camp, but I also fear that that might telegraph that I'm a bit of a Luddite. You know, I think about what my family spends on data or about 150 a month, whether it's wired or wireless. And admittedly, we don't have teenage kids. So, you know, just on its own, I, I anticipate that, that number going up a little bit. But, you know, when you spoke about, you know, obviously commercial applications as well as maybe additional consumption of what, you know, people like me or my family are going to do, what do you think they're underwriting in growth? And I guess maybe we'll hear a bit more when they do their analyst day in the not too distant future. Well, right. I, and I pointed out earlier that growth really isn't part of the equation in 2021. Verizon looking at low single digit revenue and EBITDA growth. AT&T is relatively flat to maybe up a little bit this year. So I think to, you know, kind of alluding back to the payback period, I think we're going to need to see some real growth acceleration if we're going to call C-band a big success. So maybe call it mid single digits or even better than that by the time we're in mid decade, say by 2025. So I think if that doesn't come from some of these new opportunities, these new revenue verticals, it's possible that prices, your prices, my prices for wireless are going to have to start going higher. And you know, that's hopefully where you know, a disruptive player like T-Mobile can keep AT&T and Verizon honest. But like I said earlier, there's, there's also a defensive element to it with the opportunity cost of not participating and that's more difficult to measure. I, you know, I'd point investors to those upcoming analyst days, like you mentioned, where we'll hopefully hear more about those business plans and growth ideas, particularly when both AT&T and Verizon, AT&T especially, pay out hefty dividends that offset what otherwise would go toward debt reduction. So if we are looking at a lackluster growth trajectory, it could take years, as in three, four, five years for both companies to get back to their current leverage levels. And what makes it interesting is just the size of the death stacks that they have. Well, David, this has been great. I, I really appreciate the conversation. And I'm sure we're going to see Verizon, AT&T come to the market in the not-too-distant future to help fund for this stuff. So it's going to keep you really busy. So it's, it's great that you were able to take the time to, to share these thoughts with us. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. And thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit size disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.